0: Hello and welcome to listening to the Open Door Philanthropy Conference Special. We brought our microphones down to the Nexus U.S. Summit this year at the United States Institute of Peace, and in plain view of the Lincoln Memorial, over the course of two days, we conducted ten interviews with a diverse array of conference delegates. Some of our guests, like Hank Love from the American Jobs Project, were actively fundraising, and I was able to convince Hank to submit a proposal to the unfunded list that's currently under review. Other guests, like Karen Yanis, were active funders. Karen ran Oprah Winfrey's foundation for 10 years. I was able to convince Karen to join the evaluation committee. We had a bunch of other cool folks sit down with us who were a little bit harder to find. On a personal note, this was just an absolute blast for me. Uh, I got the chance to interview some of my favorite people in a beautiful setting. We had amazing conversations. I hope you'll listen and understand that these represent just a microcosm of my own participation in Nexus over the years. I've been attending this conference for almost nine years now. Each conversation you listen to here, whether I've just met our guest or known them for years, is reminiscent of hundreds of conversations I've had in the halls of Nexus over the years. People ask me often how I've built such an impressive network. Uh, And I can tell you that it's because of conversations like these. At the very least, I think you'll find them entertaining. Please note that these were recorded live on site in a less than ideal acoustic circumstance. You can pretty much always hear me because I'm basically Shrek. But sometimes our guests are a little bit harder to hear. We'll do our best to make transcripts available since every word of these conversations were important and interesting. Uh, But for now, I hope you enjoy. We're still here at the U.S. Institute of Peace, the Nexus U.S. Summit. And our next guest is Jason Kampf. Uh, you go by Jay? Go by Jay. So we'll call you Jay. You. How, are you, uh, how are you doing, Jay? I'm doing well today. <laughs> how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, we've had a lot of really fun conversations this week. I'm sure this uh, this will be no exception. Uh, let's just start with the basics about you. Uh, who are you? Where are you from?
1: Originally from New York lived outside the D.C. area, both in Maryland, Virginia, for about the past 25 years. Um, I went to school here in D.C. I went to college here in D.C. at American University. Mm -hmm. And how I found myself in philanthropy was uh, through a company that I started at 20, which really took on the United Way. And what we wanted to do was streamline and digitize the entire that process. Um, after 9-11, billions of dollars, almost $2 billion were lost through fraud and, and mishap and mistake. And ultimately, our investors who manage money for Warren Buffett told us that we were going to become philanthropists and not billionaires. And they gave our application and software to the United Way. And so I've always been in involved in philanthropy and understand how much even $1 means to an organization Mm -hmm. and where the shortfalls are in a lot of organizations because I've stuck with it for the past 20 years serving on boards and and just lending my time and volunteering to learn and create better outcomes for the people that need it the most.
0: The um, the, uh, United Way story is very good uh, or very interesting to me. Uh, and something that, not, that was not the... Was not, uh, so basically, when there's ever uh, a large disaster, or in this case, an attack, or sometimes uh, like an epidemic or, uh, or a crisis or something, there, there can often be an increase in donations, right? I think right after a hurricane, there's just a, like, a ton of money. And it has, I think, more often than not been the case that there is a lot of waste and fraud, uh, because a lot of money comes in very quickly. They tend to go to the... Groups that have the best brand, United Way probably has the biggest brand of any nonprofit, uh, and uh, you know it can be very, it can be very difficult. So t- I, I, I'm curious to know how you like uh, exactly how is it that you help them deal with that challenge?
1: So I think like anything else, is timing, and what you said is very correct. Like in a, in a time of natural disaster, people rush to really come together and try to do things to offset and balance what's happened and I think what was happening with United Way and corporations were, United Way was a pet project and it wasn't a full-time job and depending on how large your corporation was you, you had multiple locations and you have multiple people funneling up ultimately to one person, handling everything by paper so there was a lot of human error and then hmm. during the time that we started this we started building this application in 1999 so it was like at the height of the internet boom right before the verbal bubble burst mm-hmm. and pets.com was still a thing pets.com was still <laughs> a thing myspace was there was you know it was myspace and but what unfortunately people were not prepared for were the scam artists and they weren't thinking that criminals were smart, right? They were thinking, oh, this is the internet it's, it's new, it's safe, it's fine like mm-hmm. nothing can happen um, and so a lot of little nuances were taken advantage of and ultimately when you're relying on pe- people to manage a process, there is going to be human error And we were able to look at this process and understand not from a disruptive technology perspective, but just purely a technology perspective, what is missing from the United Way process. And what we did was we, instead of charging donors, which United Way ultimately does, up to 28.9 cents on the dollar at the time, We charged companies and we built them a custom application for their business and their brand that managed their corporate philanthropic efforts globally. And so we went to the IRS and we made it possible for people to donate as much as they wanted, 1% of every paycheck, 1% of their paycheck a year during a 52-week pay period or 26 pay periods usually. Uh, we made it possible for people to donate stock, for people to donate through credit card, for people to donate uh, just cash, uh, people to ACH and debit money out of their bank if they didn't want it hmm. to come directly from their paycheck, which we thought was weird because if it came from your paycheck, it was pre-taxed.
0: I was going to ask that. You, could, you can do Yeah, that. We, we did everything pre tax
1: but some people... I guess there you know because there's 1099 employees and some people have estimated taxes and some people yeah. are just w2 so we we ran into all these issues and we really what we did was we we also updated the database for the IRS because thousands and thousands of organizations just let that go and not, and in the at the time there was about 700,000 non-registered 501c non-profits in the United States and another million around the world. And so you have to think about large companies. Even in 1999, we have tons of employees that are U.S. citizens working abroad and vice versa. And what we wanted to do was make it easy for them to contribute, especially back to natural disasters. So a lot of what drove this process to digitize things were to really bring together the core culture of any company, no matter where their employees were spread out, and to have consistent messaging around the issues that affect companies, um, their geographies, and then the natural disasters that happen in those locations. And Amazing. It was really amazing, thank you, but the the worst thing that's happened in a lot of our lifetimes, at least, has been 9-11. And 9-11... Changed the dynamic, I think, for philanthropy forever, and also changed the dynamic for our company. And ultimately, it was given away to solve a much bigger problem. And we were all young. We we were always a .dot org. We we wound up changing to a .dot com because companies weren't responding to .dot orgs. And they also didn't like the Internet model. They, they knew they had to be in the space in the sense that they needed to have www.marriott.com, but they didn't realize how big of a tool that it would become, and like, that's really going to be the first interface.
0: That's funny to think
1: about. So, yeah, you have to go back to 1999. So some, peop- some people were just too young
0: at this point. The first two nonprofits I worked at didn't have websites at all. It's weird to think about that. Like you wouldn't even, it, for most of them, it's the first thing they do. They make the website first. You wouldn't well, and, even think about not having a website. First.
1: Right. I mean, it was like, it was a whole different dynamic then. And what we also noticed was that an ASP was essentially
0: what the successful
1: .coms were, were, were doing. They, they were providing this service either B to B or B to P or B to P to whoever else and they understood that ultimately people would gravitate towards a much easier way of getting what it was that they desired. Hmm. and we saw the tool as being a way to draw in the masses because as we did the research the overwhelming majority of money donated in the United States, which was close to 55 billion dollars at the time, was all donated by individuals, which really threw us for a loop because we realized is all, at it's, that it's, point. It's
0: still the case. It's, uh, the numbers it, have gone up, but it's, the numbers go up seven percent a year almost no matter. Yep, doesn't no matter, matter. It what, really doesn't matter what happens in the right. 9-11 Eleven didn't change. It was seven percent. Nothing changed. Doesn't nothing can nothing can change it. And. And tax codes haven't changed it,
1: I mean, over the years, and I think...
0: we will be interesting to see if doubling the standard deduction... I mean, they're saying it's going to lead to a reduction in giving. I really don't think so. I don't believe there's that many givers out there who are that craven about it. Like, I will now not give because I'm not getting a right. tax deduction. <laughs> there's, I mean... I Maybe, think, but and, and... not $20 billion worth of gifts.
1: Right. And speaking of like giving, I mean, what this application taught us were all the reasons why people give, good, bad or indifferent. Mm -hmm. And so we catered to those and we customized every company's software to manage their culture. And we also did something that was really unique which a lot of companies started doing at that time and that was managing and tracking their corporate volunteer hours and like their corporate employee Mm -hmm. volunteering match programs so they would pay employees a portion of their salary to go and volunteer Mm -hmm. and we were able to successfully keep track of this for companies so that they could actually use the the deductions and use the incentives to get people to volunteer and then get the appropriate incentives that they were supposed to receive on the back end and so
0: it, it's a, a, a it's a very good point and for the uh and i think it's a a lot of the unfunded and the fundraisers um that, are, that might be listening in my experience, a lot of them don't know about this. If you have donors that work, particularly at any of the Fortune 500 companies, uh, it is almost a guarantee that that company matches donations. Absolutely. And, Up to and a few
1: thousand bucks per employee a year. year.
0: And if you're the fundraiser, like, you can't, like, not, and and this is often, like, they'll make a gift because they're making a gift to you. That employee might not know that his company matches donations, right? Or he, maybe he didn't do the paperwork or whatever. Like, a, a lot of, like, the, uh, I think a lot of fundraisers out there don't realize it's their role to like, you know, know where your donors work and know if those match programs are available, and and also with volunteers, often, uh, you know, they can be they can they can they get several days a week. With you're right, they still make their salary, but they get to go spending it volunteering. And these can be the, the highly skilled volunteer who's being paid to be there. is a really can be a really useful thing to yeah, have. I mean, right? it's
1: an amazing thing to have, especially when you're working for companies that have the resources to help. During these natural disasters, or during mm-hmm. during times of like you know severe severe disaster like 9/11, or in New Orleans when the levees broke, or some of the, the wildfires, um, these these types of disasters seem to really draw so much inclusion from the from the country mm-hmm. and from people across all sorts of, of nationalities and and skin colors and beliefs you know people just sort of forget all of that stuff and want to help um, so so it shows that there is still a lot of good in people and and I think what we were able to also accomplish was a really good understanding of how f- philanthropic minded corporations work and how we help them use this portal through their interweb and through their own corporate network to see the utility of what web pages can do so we we saw a lot of companies that started to work with us then say hey do you build web pages and we say well no that's not what we do but now we we started to see them understand the utility of having that web page and really what that meant and how it could work because it was disseminating information, it was clear messaging, consistent messaging around anything and that could be around corporate initiatives and so I think a lot of the companies that we worked with were more in the front of that than some of their peers and competitors because Mm -hmm. they saw... The real utility of how their employees responded to just this one aspect, which, if you take it back to United Way, it basically was a campaign for a couple of weeks during one month a year. And what we did was we made it a, cam- a year-long campaign that wasn't a pet project for somebody. It ran itself, and it, and it spit out a report for a CFO or an accounting, um, you know, person to take a look at all of the information that they needed very clearly. And mm-hmm. so from there, I, I took, we eventually, like I said, we, we, got, we gave the company to the United Way. It became part of what their online processing arm is. It's called E-Way. And they really helped manage a lot of the human error and some of the more costly mistakes. We also identified a lot of false nonprofit organizations we, mm. we called the FBI after 9/11 several times a week. This we, is a
0: surprising uh, number of these fraudulent nonprofits out there tons huh? of them and they're, like generally getting away with it. Like, uh, any uh, popular nonprofit, like the Wounded Warrior Project or, like, Make-A-Wish, right? There's going to be a hundred knock, like, the Give-A-Child-A-Wish Foundation or the, like, Wounded Warrior Alliance, right? They're just trying to they copy, copy they're not helping anybody. Not helping anybody, yeah. They're not
1: helping anybody. When Wounded Warrior
0: got all that flack for suing other nonprofits, but, like, those weren't, like, yes, they're nonprofits, but they're scam artists. Like, they had to sue them. They were protecting, like, their, their... um, as a... It's their their brand too. I mean, people forget that. Yeah, the, no, it's a real more... thing. That brand is important to them. It's how they it's how they're able to help the people that they are. I want to uh, uh, shift gears shift gears a little bit. Do you remember how you and I met?
1: I definitely want to say it was one hundred percent at a Nexus event. Yes.
0: I don't remember the. Exact... Do you remember the? Uh, there was a. I think the theme of the dinner was at Darlington House, and the Darlington, theme of the I mean, dinner was uh, Can Money Buy Happiness? happiness. <laughs> uh, and what I remember, a wonderful dinner. And I, also, I think it's also where I met uh, John Benenson. Yes. And, I, and in particular, I remember that you, me, and John were, as uh, I'm sure will surprise no one, uh, three of the most vocal folks at that they're very, very uh, wildly opinionated. Uh, I, I remember, um, you know, in particular uh, what you said. I remember you were saying, you know, you had uh, been, you know, uh, you didn't give the details of the company, but you said, you know, I used to be a single guy, uh, right, I run in this company and everything, uh, and then, uh, uh, but real, you found real happiness when what happened? When I met Crystal. Yeah. So I, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I met uh, my girlfriend, my current girlfriend, Crystal, and she, I'm a stepdad now to two girls. So she has two girls that were five and seven when we first met and um, I think everything changes when you actually are really needed by somebody little and you develop these unique relationships because you can sort of see how the world unfolds to somebody who's learning it for the first time. And watching that really broadened my aperture for how I viewed everything in life. Because it wasn't just for me now; it was for these little, little minds and these people that were just experiencing stuff for the first time. And um, that's incredible. It's been <laughs> it's been an incredible ride. I mean, it's every day is there's there's good, there's bad, there's sad, there's happy. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you know, when you say goodnight and you tuck them in bed, or you like, you know, make sure they're okay there's nothing that you get otherwise as satisfying. And so that's been a real gift to me and maybe the best gifts I'll ever
0: receive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're probably right about that. Um, the, uh, uh, at Nexus and, and, and also with the unfunded list, and I think a lot of people in the social impact sector, uh, you know, they spend a lot of time talking about things uh, like the stuff you worked on. Uh, disasters. Um, uh, most of the proposals that come to us are some sort of solution to like a major social problem. Right, someone is suffering out there as well. Uh, but that's uh, uh, and uh, one of my concerns. Right, I think those uh, all that's great. We need we need uh, solutions to social problems. Right, but the social sector is much uh, is about much more than that. Uh, in particular, um, the the arts is uh, is a, is a part of this sector. They are nonprofits just like anybody else. Uh, and um, uh, I know you are an artist and uh, an interested in that space. Um, and uh, you know we do get some artistic proposals submitted to us. Uh, you know people uh, people trying to make a documentary, or sometimes a play, or uh, some or, or a musical about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, <laughs> that was one of my favorite. I'd ones I'd fund ones that. Me. Would you? All right. I'm happy to introduce you to Matt Barr. I'm sure he'd be actually. You know what? You'd really. Get, I'm definitely going to introduce you to Matt. You 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 would like that guy, yeah. uh, and, and you should. Uh, I'll I'll send over the proposal for the Rvg the musical. He's written some of the songs. He's already recorded some of it. It's it, great. It, it's pretty good. Um, but uh, you know, I would like to hear. I, I I would really like to receive even more uh, proposals related to the arts. Because while it can be like uh, maybe a little bit more unclear how the, how the arts solve certain social problems, right? Like it's not like. Um, uh, with the, you can't do a play uh, and have that uh, clean up a community, right? Sure. But, it, but that doesn't mean that it uh, doesn't mean it's any less virtuous. So, uh, talk to me a little bit. I know you are an artist, uh, perhaps involved in funding the arts and arts organizations as well. Uh, uh, how did you get into that? From the the work you were doing with the United? States? Have you always been an artist? So, uh, so
1: it's a good question. I think everyone's an artist, and hmm. uh, I agree. Of course, I've always been an artist, and honestly, you know i don't want it to sound cliche but i've always been an artist and until i met crystal no one in my life had pushed me and encouraged me the way she did and after meeting her i became a published artist a published photographer i've sold paintings i've sold photos and i've worked on larger projects and then i've also found my way into film and mostly documentary and on the independent side and i look at art as a very basic, rudimentary way of communication. So we look at, like, our history early on, even if we go back to the famous cave drawings, Mm. we've left behind some evidence of what was around us. And art's always been a form of communication, maybe before spoken word. Um, I sort of feel like art and music and then spoken word you know, I'm no expert, but I sort of feel like that was the genesis. I think um, sounds were much easier to create than te- syntax and text and and words that we could relate to today. Mm-hmm. I think so. You know, music as an art form, and then drawings and evolving those drawings. Um, we also see large landscape. Um, etchings into the earth so from above we've now seen all these huge huge kind of landscape drawings if you will Um, and what they resemble are different things, birds, animals, um, people, large people we've seen um, through other various just uh, geographies so I think the basic art form of interpretation really is, is to open dialogue. And if you take those interpretations a step further, anyone can look at a piece of art, anyone can look at a, or watch and listen to a play, but we all get different things out of that. We all see different things, but we don't, what we don't necessarily see, especially with a painting or a photograph, is we don't see the color or the race or the religion or the beliefs of the person who painted or took that photo. What we see is an image that resonates with us and begs us to speak or say something in in return to what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And if you take that very simple, what I just described, and say, okay, if we can appreciate somebody's work, why can't we appreciate them as a person? So we may you know if you take an extreme example of someone who's, who's just completely racist and against black people or against Asian people but they see this picture and they love it do they hate it now that they find out that the person who took it was black or, or Asian and mm-hmm. you know that's that's like the basic rudimentary like let's cross that barrier first and then for the people who are very open minded and very intellectual and very willing to have a constructive debate against something that they don't believe some paintings some photography some works of art allow for that dialogue to take place and allow for you to to really hold a constructive forum for people to come together and and view things more artistically than in in sort of a textbook manner or a scientific manner where it is black or white or it is right or wrong Mm -hmm. and I do a lot of volunteering in school with the kids for art, and it's amazing um, because there's no rules in art. And kids, you know, any rule that they learn of, they want to break, and they don't know all the rules yet. So art is always a fun place to watch kids. And so I think, I really believe we are all artists, and the, the younger we get children involved in art, I think the more perspective, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, we allow our society to have. And I think art is a crucial component to any of the dialogues and any of the issues because it's so hard for people to reson- to get people to resonate with issues and fund issues that are of meaning and scale. But art can bring people together and masses can change those Issues greatly because it's not always just money that fixes a problem. Mm-hmm. Awareness is a lot more of the issue, and that takes a lot more money. That mm-hmm. takes the money, whereas you can't spend the money on the problem. If you have artists creating awareness, that is leveraging so much more power than. So, do you can fund do the with. arts? You make gifts I, to, I to artists? I do fund the arts. Uh, mm-hmm. I funded locally in Washington, D.C. The Phillips Collection I'm patron there, and it's an amazing, beautiful museum. It's a beautiful museum. It's a wonderful institution. It's going to be a hundred years old in four years, and so as a nonprofit, especially in the arts, because let's face it, like no one's dying, no one's starving. There's no disease
0: to cure. It, it's a museum. Right? So, um, to last 100 years... Hopefully no one's starving to death in the Phillips Museum. No, but... The cafeteria there's great. There's really no excuse for that. It's true. Good point. But I think as a cause,
1: you know, to last 100 years... um, Yeah, yeah. Have they been
0: 100 years in that... Right in that spot? I don't know if they've been in that spot. That's an older building. In four
1: years, it'll be their 100th anniversary of of being in, in open doors as a museum. And then I support local artists and, and artists that I just find I'm drawn to, you know especially like, like, if they're affordable. How, how do you
0: find these how do you find local artists? Whenever there.
1: I travel it's it's one of the biggest things that I have on my list of, of stuff I want to accomplish when I have free time. So I always try to get out into a local art scene and being a photographer, I can capture and usually kill those two birds with one stone. So I'll take the time that I use for going to photograph a city or architecture or wherever. And I like to try to start with uh, kind of the, like in the Winwood district in outside Miami or in um, places downtown L.A. and just near galleries and, and places where, you know, you can kind of see what's going on with street art and in galleries and, whether it's um, also local fairs, like in New York, up in Soho, you know, tons of artists and street artists and artisans from all medium, whether it's jewelry to canvas to photo to drawing on newspaper right there, or one of my favorites is a guy who makes these great um, drawings on subway maps. And, um, you know, so I always try to get to those places. And some for inspiration, some for just to kind of see where things are moving and, and also to support these people who really are local artisans and just to give back to that community. Uh, I think that dialogue and that interaction is something you only get with an artist and someone who's really given everything to that particular
0: craft. And that's, you know, that's their job. So Very cool. If we get uh, some arts-related proposals submitted next round, would you be willing to take a look at some of them? I would be happy
1: to take a look at not only art proposals but any proposals that you feel I could be uh, helpful to. And awesome! It would be a real honor to look at the art stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, we get. Uh, they are they're uh, some of my favorites. I mean, obviously, I I, I don't want to play too much. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to be, too, uh, be too preferential here. Right. But like I, I, you know, the uh, I am I'm a little bit concerned that uh, that our generation might, uh, especially our generation of funders, uh, might uh, because we are so um, interested in impact and you know yeah. measurement, right. uh, and evaluation refills, and right. quick results that we may and it is. You can look at the numbers. The arts funding is on the way down, um, and so it's great to meet a. Uh, uh, you know, a younger funder that does have that, does have that interest and uh, because there's definitely still artists out there creating art and I think in the world today, really important to create it. Uh, so hopefully we get some really interesting art stuff to show you and some other great stuff. Love Thanks it. very much for stopping by. I hope you enjoy the rest of the summit.